24, and you might find it helpful to follow along. If not, um, you can't pull it up on your phone or anything, then do just listen along, uh, and I'll hope, hopefully be able to unpack the story clearly uh, t t this evening with us. In the narrative, we're introduced to two men walking along a road from Jerusalem to a village called Emmaus, and they're walking along that road with sad and heavy hearts, and we're taken in the narrative on a journey with them. It's a journey not just from Jerusalem to Emmaus, but we're taken on a journey with them from a place of sadness of heart to a place where in the end of the encounter, their hearts are burning with hope and newfound joy because they've come to see everything that Jesus accomplished for them. What brings about the change in their hearts? Well, they meet the risen Lord Jesus. Their sadness is dispelled and their hearts begin to burn bright with joy and hope. And I think there's so much in this message that is relevant for us this evening. Because in these days, as we experience what we could call a crisis of hope in our surrounding culture, when there's so much out there today that can drain our hope, the greatest need of every one of us is to experience the heart-awakening, hope-instilling life that is found in Jesus Christ. He can meet us in the despondency of our hearts, and he can transform our hearts so that they overflow with the new hope that is found in him. Now, the journey along the road with these two men is made up of three main scenes. First, Jesus meets them in their sadness of heart. Then he shows them that actually their real problem is slowness of heart, and then finally, as Jesus unpacks the scriptures and his accomplishments to them, we see that he gives them burning hearts. So we're going to go on this journey with them from sad hearts to the real problem, their slow hearts, to the place where, and I, I thought this was too cheesy, their sizzling hearts, <laughs> the place where they're burning. That would give me a third S, but we don't need to worry about that. So, Let's look first of all at this scene. Jesus meets them in their state of sadness of heart. The narrative begins with the words, that very day. And we know already from chapter 24, verse 1, that this is the first day of the week. It was the day when the women came to the tomb on that first Easter morning to find the first evidence of the resurrection of Jesus in the empty tomb. Then the angel made that great announcement. He's not here, but has risen. In chapter 24, verse 9, we read that this announcement was eventually reported to the 11 disciples and to all uh, the rest, a whole load of other people. And we pick up the story and we read that same day. And then we read about these two men who heard of this report and they were making a journey from Jerusalem to this town called Emmaus. Emmaus was about seven miles 
uh, away from Jerusalem. It's the journey of, say, Shaw's Bridge to Lisbon on the towpath along the river, uh, a, a towpath I've been running on and cycling on as I try to get ready for this triathlon I'm going to be doing. I haven't told a lot of you about that yet, but I'm going to be doing a triathlon, and you'll hear more about it soon. These guys are walking along this seven-mile road, and they've plenty to discuss along the way. The language of verse 15 tells us they're having an intense discussion as they go along this walk. They're both totally engaged, batting back and forward different ideas, and, and talking about everything that's been going on in Jerusalem. That's everything about Jesus, what happened with him, his entrance on the donkey, his clearing the temple, his death, his teaching. They're, they're discussing it all. We read that their eyes were kept um, from recognizing Jesus then as he comes alongside them. While they're talking, Jesus draws near and goes along the road with them. Imagine it, Jesus himself looking on, walking with them as they try to figure out everything that's going on but they can't recognize Jesus, and it seems that in their uncertainty, God had more to teach them before the fullness of Jesus would be revealed to them. In verse 17, Jesus, who comes alongside them, asks them what their conversation is about. And the question just stops them in their tracks, and you'd be able to visualize this. Two men walking along, talking intensely, then this stranger comes along and says, what are you talking about? What's this you're going on about? And they just stop and they're almost like looking and going, what? What are we talking about? We read that they stop, they stand still, and in verse 17, that they look sad. Their sadness of heart is clear in the narrative, but they're astonished, as astonished as this man's ignorance, as they are sad about everything that has happened. They cannot believe that this man said, what is all this you're talking about? They can't believe that this man doesn't know all the things they're talking about that have happened in Jerusalem. So one of the men, we're told his name is Cleopas, answers this unknown traveler who's come up alongside them and says, are you the only visitor to Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened there in these days? And Jesus, seeking to draw out their understanding of the event, says, what things? And now from verses 19 to 24, we have this man, Cleopas's summary of all the events that surrounded Jesus' death. He explains how Jesus was a prophet, mighty in word and deed before God and all the people. And then he says, our chief priests and rulers delivered him up to be condemned to death. They crucified him, but we had hoped that he was the one who was going to redeem Israel. That means save us. They had allowed themselves to believe that Jesus was the Old Testament long-awaited Messiah, a promised deliverer who would save them from their greatest problems. They thought that Jesus would redeem them from the sad state of their lives, their lives that were beset by challenges and difficulties. But all their hope in Jesus died when Jesus died. And that's why they were so sad of heart. Their hope that Jesus was, Jesus was the promised Messiah was dashed. Jesus had let them down. So they thought. But then in verse 22, they add this kind of news flash announcement. They say, moreover, some women of our company amazed us. They were at the tomb early in the morning. 
And when they did not find his body, they came back saying that they had even seen a vision of angels who said that he was alive. Some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said, but him they did not see. Now we come to see what they are discussing as they're walking along the road. They've heard this report and they're saying, what does this mean? It's quite ironic here in the narrative. They say they need to see Jesus. We haven't seen him yet, and there he is right in front of them, but they they can't see him. If only they see him, they'll believe that he's risen, but he's right in front of them, and they don't see. And these men walking along are disappointed with Jesus because they thought that they might have found in him a happier state of existence. And I think that's quite telling because it tells us something about the state of their lives before they ever met Jesus. They were battling misery. And in this way, these two men are a perfect picture of so many in our culture today. There's so much around us that can cause us heaviness of heart, sadness of heart. Just think of what we're seeing at the moment. The costs of living are soaring. There's news bulletins about the war in Ukraine and other wars that depress us. There's health concerns, family issues that we all have, relationship strains, work stress, not to speak of the various mental health struggles so many of us have. There are so many things in our culture that can just drain our hope and joy. And these guys had found something that had sparked a little bit of hope and life in them, in Jesus, but then Jesus died, and they were sad again. And this kind of sadness is not just something that people who are not Christians experience. This can be the experience of Christians. Hope can stand in front of us in the person of Jesus, but sometimes we don't seem to be able to see how his reality meets us in our sad state. We can be Christians and have a relationship with Jesus and he's there with us, but sometimes we just cannot seem to see how he can help us in our misery. Is this a fault on the part of Jesus? Well, the next scene tells us most certainly not. But before we move into the next scene when Jesus shows them that their real problem is actually slowness of heart, let's not miss the beautiful act here of Jesus subtly and quietly coming alongside these two travelers, Cleopas and his unnamed friend, in their state of sadness. There's something beautiful about Jesus entering their space, their sadness, their despondency. He doesn't want them to stay there. He doesn't want them to be in that place where they're sad of heart. He comes alongside them to transform their hearts. Well, the first part of that is by confronting them with their real problem. And Jesus does that now in the second scene. Jesus shows them that their real problem behind their sadness of heart is their slowness of heart. Jesus rebukes these men quite sharply in verse 25, saying they're foolish and slow of heart to believe. He said to them, O foolish ones and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. 
Jesus is essentially saying there, your problem's not because God has failed you. Your problem is that you're slow of heart to believe all that is written in the scriptures. Jesus explains that it was a divine necessity that the Christ would suffer these things and then enter his glory. And then in verse 27, amazingly, Jesus takes them to the Old Testament scriptures and he walks them through what we could call the greatest biblical theology lesson ever given. Here the Lord of history expounds history and oh, to be a fly on the wall in that moment. God preaching the mighty works of God. Just imagine Jesus starting at Genesis 3.15, a passage after the fall where God speaks a word of hope to Adam and Eve that one day a serpent crusher is gonna come. That's the picture that's used. Satan's the serpent and he's just caused Adam and Eve to fall and they're responsible for it but, but he was there bringing it about and God promises that one day there's gonna be this seed of the woman, a man born of the woman, and he's gonna crush all that the serpent has done. You can imagine just Jesus starting there. That's about me. And you can imagine him going on through the Old Testament scriptures, Genesis 12, where God spoke of Abraham having a son through whom all nations would be blessed. Genesis 22, you've got this picture of Abraham about to sacrifice his son Isaac, and then there's a, there's a ram caught in a thicket and the ram dies in place of Isaac and, and Isaac goes free and the, the ram dies and it's, it's like a picture of what Jesus would do on the cross. And you can imagine Jesus going on forward to unpack the exodus, the Passover, the opening of the sea, the manna, the water, the rock that was struck, the tabernacle, the sacrifices in Leviticus, the day of atonement, the scapegoat, the prophets, Isaiah's Emmanuel and suffering servant light for the Gentiles, Jeremiah's righteous branch, new covenant hope, Daniel's stone that would become a mountain, Malachi's sun rising with healing in his wings. Imagine it. Jesus teaches them that the Messiah's death was not a tragic termination of hope, but a divine plan to redeem people from the greatest oppressor, and that is sin, separation from God, and death. Their problem wasn't that Jesus had let them down. Their problem was that they misunderstood what Christianity is really all about. And it's so sad today that in our culture, so many people walk away from Jesus, not because Jesus has let them down, but because they've misunderstood truly what the Christian faith is all about. Sometimes we walk away from God because we feel he's disappointed us. How could a good God do this or let this happen? There are many other ways that that conversation can play out and lead us to drift from God. May I suggest that in our finite knowledge, we at times cannot understand God's great ways. But the problem is not ultimately with God. The problem is that we are slow of heart to trust God and to believe in his goodness even when we can't put together the story of his goodness in our lives in a way that satisfies us. We can't put it together in a way that we understand or it satisfies us. And so sometimes we walk away 
But once again, notice that though Jesus rebukes them, he doesn't just rebuke them for the sake of rebuking them. He rebukes them to awaken their sad and slow, faithless hearts. He comes alongside them, he challenges them, and he opens the scriptures to them. And this leads us to the final scene in the narrative where Jesus now reveals himself and we learn of the impact he's had on their hearts. And that is, it makes them burn with hope. Where once they were like wet, extinguished fire, suddenly they come alive again. So verse 28, we read that the two men alongside Jesus draw near to a mess, and it looks like Jesus is going to continue on to another destination, but the two men urge him to stay with them since the evening was drawing in. Verse 30 fast forwards us to Jesus in the house with the men, sitting down to have a meal together. The men still don't know who this traveling companion is, but that all changes when at the table Jesus takes bread blesses it, like prays for a wee grace before the meal. He breaks it and he gives it to them. And suddenly we read in this moment that their eyes were opened and they recognized Jesus. And then in verse 31, that he suddenly vanished from their sight. What must this have been like for those two men? Where at the start of their journey with this unnamed traveler, their hearts were heavy and their hope had grown cold Now seeing Jesus and reflecting on their biblical theology lesson with him, they say together, did not our hearts burn within us while he talked with us on the road and while he opened to us the scriptures? And so they arise, that same hour, they head back to Jerusalem, all the way back. They made it to Lisbon and now they're going all the way back to Belfast. From a mess back to Jerusalem, because they want to report to all the other disciples that they've met the risen Lord and that he has set their hearts alight with hope. And the closing picture in the third scene of our narrative is a gathering of the disciples and others who are joyfully assembled because their hearts have been set alight with the hope that they have discovered in the risen Jesus. It's a beautiful picture of the church, actually. So those are the three scenes in the account of the Emmaus Road. But what I want to do now as we draw things to a close is to ask, how can we experience that burning heart that those first disciples experienced on the road to Emmaus with Jesus? If we have come in this evening and we're feeling quite sad and heavy-hearted, How can we move from that sadness of heart and slowness of heart to the place where our hearts are burning with joy and hope in the Lord? The easy way to ask that question is, how do we get hearts that are burning with hope? If you imagine it like a, your heart's like a a stove and you need fire under it and, and there's a pot on the stove and there's water in it and your heart's like that but your heart's cold, it's not bubbling. How do you get that fire underneath your heart so that it sets your affections alight? Well, how did these men come to have burning hearts in our passage? 
many would answer that by saying, well, they got burning hearts because they met with the risen Lord. That's what made their hearts burn. And then we might say, and it's different for us, because they met the risen Lord and saw him physically, but we don't. So we can't experience to we can't expect to experience burning hearts because Jesus is invisible and it's not as real as it was for them. But if we look closely again at the text, did their hearts burn at the point when they recognized that it was Jesus with them? And the answer, of course, to that question is no. When did they say that their hearts burned? Verse 32, did not our hearts burn within us while he talked to us on the road and while he opened to us the scriptures? Remember, at this point, they still didn't know it was Jesus. It was in the scriptures being opened to them that their hearts started to fill with hope and life in the Lord. And again, you might object and say, well, they had the risen Lord expounding the scriptures to them. We've been left to ourselves to read them, so we can't expect to have burning hearts the same as them, but that's not the case. We can't make that excuse because Jesus said that though one day he would go away, it was for our good. Because he said he would send another, the Holy Spirit, who Jesus said would guide us into all the truth. Jesus said in John 15, the Holy Spirit would take his words and declare them to Jesus' followers. In our own passage in verse 45, we read of Jesus opening the disciples' minds so that they could understand the scriptures. I think that's striking. We have the scriptures. We have the spirit of Christ who comes to us and opens the scriptures and gives us understanding. That's the Bible. We have everything we need to have our hearts set alight and our affections set on fire and our hope set on fire. We have everything we need to experience the burning heart that those men experienced on the road to a mass. So to collapse it all down into some really clear steps, how do we get hearts that are no longer sad or slow, but that are on fire with hope for Je- in Jesus? We've got just four very simple, concrete steps. First thing we need to do is recognize our misery and unhappiness and the reality of our sinful condition. We need to just stop pretending And we need to acknowledge that we're insecure. We're all empty without the fullness of Jesus. We need to recognize the sadness of heart that is our reality, even though we try to brush over it all the time and entertain entertain ourselves, numb that insecurity that we all have through entertainment, through busyness, through whatever it is. We need to just get real and say, Lord, there's something really missing in my life. Second thing we need to do, we need to confess that that sadness of heart is due to slowness of heart, a lack of faith. We confess that the problem of our sadness doesn't ultimately lie with God, it lies with with ourselves. 
Third, we receive God's word by faith. The whole counsel of God, that Jesus alone can deal with our sin problem. His death sets us free from the misery of our sin. His resurrection means that Jesus has all power over sin, death, hell, and fallenness. And then we rest all our hope in Jesus. We look to him alone to give us the deep satisfaction, peace, rest, and happiness that we all crave. All of God's promises are yes and amen in him. He's the one who has promised one day finally to return and put away all the sin, all the evilness, all the brokenness of this world. Because he lives, we can face tomorrow. Because he lives, his light shines in the darkness of our culture of despair. We know that the light will always overcome the darkness, no matter how dark it gets. And Jesus has proved all of this by his glorious, powerful, unstoppable resurrection. Death could not hold the Son of God down. He trampled it under his feet. So, in closing tonight, how is your heart? Is it sad? Is it slow? Will turn and put your hope in the risen Lord Jesus. We've heard from Ruth and Glenn how they themselves have discovered that hope, and I know they would love for every single person in here to share that hope. Let's hope again in Jesus. Or for the first time, let's hope in Jesus. If you're a Christian and you've drifted away from God and you know that the affections of your heart, if you were to look at that pot of water, it's cold, it's lukewarm. And for a long time, there's been no fire. Pray and ask the Lord to give you that, that heart that burns. Ask him to give you a new love for his word, to open it afresh so that your heart will f- be filled again with hope. And if you've never known that hope, That hope is here for you tonight. The Lord could light a fire under your heart tonight. And that would be the joy of our hearts to know that you yourself have encountered the burning heart, the heart that is transformed by Jesus because that is Christianity. Christianity is not just a decision where you just have mental assent. I'm gonna believe that, believe that, believe that. Yep, tick, tick, tick. But you feel nothing or you have no life transformation. Christianity is when your heart is changed from being dead, slow, and cold to being made alive. And that's a work that only God can do. Has your heart been made alive? We'll pray and cry out to God to set a fire under your heart that will never go out. We would invite you to respond to the risen Lord tonight. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for the opportunity just to reflect on this journey of the road to a mess, but more than that, the journey from sadness of heart through slowness of heart to the place where their hearts overflowed with new hope. And we pray that that would be our experience tonight, that we would recognize our sad condition apart from Jesus, confess our slowness of heart, put our hope in Jesus and find in him everything we need. 
We ask that you would do that work in our hearts. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Well, we'll close by responding with the words of this wonderful hymn, The Lord is My Salvation. As the musicians start, let's stand together and praise God with the words of this song.
the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with us all evermore.